So we're recording this program again. This is Richard Mollett, and today's program is on assisted living, promising policies and practices to improve care and quality of life. And as I just mentioned, I'm going to mute. And then we will unmute at the end of the program for any Q&A. If there's anything, any concern that you have or a question that you have in the meantime, uh, during the course of the program that you need an immediate answer to, you can press star six uh, and you can uh, break the uh, break into the call. Let me know if you have a question. Otherwise, please save your questions for the end of the program. And you could also type your questions in on the box and Sarah will help with that. And we'll read those through at the end as well. Uh, so again, this is, this program is on assisted living, promising policies and practices. And, sorry, I just had a screen that popped up. A little bit about us, we usually get started. The Long-Term Care Community Coalition, LTCCC, we are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for elderly and adult disabled people in long-term care. That uh, includes specifically people who live in nursing homes and in assisted living. Assisted living could be called many different things, as um, many of you probably know, could be an adult's home, could be board and care, could be enriched housing. Uh, there's Medicaid assisted living, et cetera. There's a range of assisted living types of programs and uh, types of facilities. Uh, a little bit more about LTCCC before we go on into the heart of the program, which, which we'll be talking about assisted living. We focus on policy analysis and systems advocacy in our home state of New York and nationally. We do in addition to that, um, a lot of education of consumers and families, of ombudsmen, other people who work with consumers and families, including attorneys. Uh, we work with providers and uh, policymakers on both the state and federal levels. We also are very proud to be home of the local long-term care ombudsman program for the Hudson Valley in New York. So welcome to all our volunteers and staff who will be joining us today. A little bit about me, I joined LTCCC in 2002, and I've been the executive director since 2005. And joining me today is Sean Wang. He is our policy fellow, and he is a graduate as of last year, or graduated last year, uh, from Columbia University, the Melman School of Public Health. So he'll be joining me later on in the program. What are we going to be talking about today specifically is that I'm going to provide some background about assisted living, how it differs from nursing home care. There is a lot of confusion about that. I think that confusion ranges for, for consumers, you know, the public, seniors. Uh, it certainly goes to even providers and to the uh, policymakers, people who work on the state and federal level. In fact, I was watching a news show yesterday about the federal government shutdown, and they were talking about people in assisted living possibly um, because of HUD, um, HUD grants and, and the stoppage of work at the Housing and Urban Development Office that um, people might be losing their assisted living homes. That's actually not true. It was not an accurate understanding of what assisted living is. That was independent senior living. I think it was low-income senior living specifically, but it was not assisted living, which is a, an environment in which there is 
care provided to the residents. So we'll talk a little bit about assisted living and how it differs from nursing homes. We're going to talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of the assisted living model. And then the U.S. Government Accountabilities Office 2018 report, really a, a landmark report on uh, what they call critical incidents in assisted living. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about our study, our assisted living report that we came out with a couple of months ago, in which really, uh, based upon our years of work with assisted living residents and people who work with them, and of course, ombudsmen, and the GAO study that came out last year, that we wanted to undertake some work to identify, you know, what's going on out there and what are some of the promising policies and practices that we can identify as being useful to improving care, quality of life, safety, and dignity in assisted living. So we'll talk about some of the recommendations we have for all stakeholders, including, uh, of course, residents, prospective residents, people who work in and operate facilities, and policymakers as well. And then we'll talk about how each of the states measures up, so to speak, in respect to various policies. Part of what we did, and Sean, who's on the call, uh, focused on this, is we looked to see how the different states, you know, for different areas that we thought were important, dementia care, et cetera, um, what kind of protections did various states have? And then Sean will talk about some of the assisted living fact sheets that we just introduced today they just went live on our website, nursinghome411.org, uh, today, and I'll talk about some of them. There's a range of them that we hope will be useful to all the stakeholders to improving care, improving safety, improving dignity in their facilities. So a little bit of background on the promise of assisted living and the reality of assisted living. So the promise of assisted living, this is something that we have focused on for decades, uh, that assisted living is supposed to provide and does in many ways and in many cases provide an alternative model for people who need or want residential long-term care. Uh, and the model is really predicated on these four areas. One, more resident choice and control choice in terms of how he or she wants to live, control of activities, control of how um, she's going to go about her life, whether it be morning, noon, or night. And that, of course, relates to independence, that that person is maintaining a significant degree of independence in directing their lives. Uh, part of it in the green button on the left-hand side, bottom left-hand side is continuing to participate in the outside communities. That A lot of people, when they move to assisted living, they, as we'll talk about a little bit more, they want to avoid the institutionalization that accompanies most nursing home care in this country. And so that idea of continuing to participate in the outside community, it's something that federal policymakers have focused on. It's something that consumers have long focused on, whether it be a church group or a gardening club or being able to go shopping, uh, et cetera, that people want to maintain that connection uh, with, with the world that they've lived in for, you know, throughout their lives and what's important to them when they go into a facility, into an assisted living facility. Excuse me. Uh, and then also services that minimize the need to move. People, what we, the way we call it is aging in place. The people, when they move to an assisted living, they uh, oftentimes – Maybe they've come out of a hospital and it's really not safe for them to go home any longer, 
or they're experiencing some level of dementia and they would be better off or they feel they'd be better off in a place where they could have 24-hour monitoring uh, and some kind of care services, maybe help with medication, et cetera, that once they move to an assisted living, a big priority for a lot of the families and, and residents and prospective residents is that they hope not to have to move again, so that they really want to stay there for as long as possible. Now, the problem is that as uh, I don't have any text here, you know, it's a roll of the dice, is that the reality is that assisted living, some of them are great, and some of them do provide the, that level of services, the aging in place, the connection to the community, et cetera, uh, but unfortunately, many of them do not. And my organization with the Coalition of Institutionalized Aging and Disabled, actually before I started in around 2000, they did a study that found that uh, more and more assisted living were actually replicating the institutionalization that we see in many nursing homes, that residents really didn't have as many choice as the choices as they, as they hoped to have. They didn't have the level of independence that they hoped to have. So that was something that was, uh, I think, quite a, a wake-up call, an eye-opener for, for many of us, and that was around 2000. And throughout that time, or I should say since that time, we've seen further uh, both nursing homes and assisted living so that it's moving towards a system that could be more focused on what the provider wants to provide as a business without having that business model really being tailored around the resident, which, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is really for us, I think for seniors and others who need long-term care, is really the draw of assisted living. So a little bit in terms of comparing uh, nursing homes versus assisted living. And when, again, when I say assisted living, as I mentioned at the start, I'm including everything here. So, you know, our state has, in New York, we have adult homes. We have enriched housing. Other states have board and care. And we're talking about, just to move down to the, um, the lower bullet uh, area about assisted living, it's mostly private pay. Uh, it has a small but growing Medicaid population. There are no federal safety standards for assisted living, period. No safety standards. And state standards for assisted living tend to be very low, and they tend to be less focused on ensuring health and safety. They tend to be less focused on meeting people's clinical needs. Moving up, uh, just to take it out of order, um, nursing homes, most of the care is paid for by the public, either through Medicaid or through Medicare, and there are strong resident protections from the nursing home reform law, uh, from the regulations that came out of the reform law on the federal level, as well as some state regulations. So just in short, nursing homes, you have a very strong history from 1987 on of public interest, of public interest in quality, public interest in safety, et cetera. Now, I know that for a lot of nursing home residents, those rights are not necessarily realized. I mean, a lot of our programs, a lot of these monthly programs that we've been hosting for over a year now, they focus on nursing homes, and they focus on that. So we realize there's a lot of work to be done in terms of nursing homes, but at least those protections are there and the basic standards are there. For assisted living, that just isn't the case. The state standards, as I mentioned before, tend to be 
uh, much, much lower. They tend to anticipate people who don't have as much needs, uh, and it tends to be private pay. So that takes out a lot of the both the state and the federal interest, so to speak, in um, in ensuring that there's quality and in being able to implement quality standards. I noted on the right here, which I just wanted to mention, is what we really see is a medical model versus a social model. And that's, that's how the industry will often term it. And I guess, you know, to some extent, it is useful. The, you know, when we think about nursing homes, we think about someone who, by definition, needs to have 24-hour skilled nursing care and monitoring. Assisted living, on the other hand, developed as more of a social model, whereas people, as I mentioned before, maybe they could not live safely at home. Um, they might have some level of dementia, but they don't need or 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week skilled nursing monitoring and care, at least generally speaking, when they come into an assisted living. Uh, and I think the tension that we've seen and the reason why we've seen uh, increasing numbers of problems in the GAO study, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is because the assisted living population has grown more and more like the nursing home population in terms of medical needs, in terms of needs uh, needing help with medication, in terms of needing help with what we call activities of daily living, uh, help with dressing, help with bathing, uh, help with dining and, and, and eating, etc. that those things have um, grown over the years for assisted living, where we're seeing now more and more residents who are aging in place, who are staying in assisted living with uh, more significant levels of dementia. And the problem for us from a consumer perspective is that the standards, the protections are not there to make sure that they are safe the way they are in nursing homes. So I know it gets a little bit complicated, but I just wanted to, again, make that distinction is that, you know, the nursing homes, again, is predicated on people needing 24-hour skilled nursing care and that there are a lot of federal standards that go along with it. The assisted living is more of a, uh, a less institutional environment, generally speaking, in which people were coming in and they needed some help with things, but they did not need that 24-hour skilled nursing However, the tension that we're seeing is that more and more assisted living is taking in and keeping residents who do have that high level of need, but the requirements in terms of nursing care, in terms of monitoring, et cetera, um, are not necessarily there. So as I mentioned earlier on, over that, the, the throw over the dice is that it really depends. Some assisted living are providing RN care. They do have significant dementia care, training, et cetera, monitoring, and others do not, but it really is up to the consumer to know what they're getting into in more cases than not in our experience. Briefly, some of our perspectives on assisted living. Um, you know, we recognize that the typical nursing home is not a, a great place to live or to get care. Uh, I mean, I think the nursing home, um, and there are some great nursing homes out there. There are some administrators and nursing home workers with whom we've worked over the year that I have a tremendous amount of respect for that I think are doing a really good job that are actually fulfilling a lot of the things that we talk about when we, you know, when I first talked about the promise of assisted living, that they are honoring their residents' choices. They are honoring that the residents are, have a right to self-direct, the right to get dressed the way they want to, the right to 
um, be groomed the way they want to, the, the right to go to sleep and wake up at the times that they want to, etc. cetera. Uh, but unfortunately, I think for most nursing home residents, that is not the case. We know, the data show, that most nursing homes do not have enough staff to meet the just the clinical needs of all their residents. That's about 91% according to federal studies. That's some of the things we've talked about in other programs, so I won't talk about it here. So, But we know that nursing homes are generally a place where people want to avoid and that assisted living has become an attractive alternative for people who need or, or, or just want residential care. They feel like, okay, I'm ready to move into a congregate setting um, because it's too hard for me to live at home or I'm forgetting things, et cetera. Where, 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 do, where can I go? Well, I would personally choose just, you know, off the face of it, an assisted living over a nursing home, generally speaking, because it just sounds much more attractive. Meanwhile, there have been, as I've kind of been hinting at, long-standing concerns about the quality of care in assisted living, um, the safety and the oversight, both inside an assisted living and coming from outside, the state oversight. Is this, is this state really looking to see and making sure that residents are safe. Uh, and then lastly, whether assisted living is fulfilling its promise in, res- in respect to quality of life. As I mentioned before, we did a study 17 years ago, 18 years ago now, that found that, that in many cases, assisted living was almost as institutional or as institutional as the nursing homes that it was seeking to replace. So um, how can we improve care? How can we improve quality of life? Uh, a few things I wanted to mention in the last orange bullet on this page is there's that balance between the social model that I mentioned earlier and the clinical needs of residents. And again, residents in assisted living, when they move into assisted living, they want to stay as their needs become greater. So how do we balance that? How do we balance between having an atmosphere that is less restrictive than a nursing home, less um, federal regulations than a nursing home, and making sure that it is not a dangerous place for people who are living there, people who are coming in and people who are staying as their needs become greater. There's also the issue of private pay versus access. Uh, people go into a nursing home, I think most of them now, uh, especially middle-class people, are start off at a private pay, excuse me, and then they spend down their income and they wind up going on Medicaid. There is, that's for the nursing homes. In assisted living, we're seeing a growth of Medicaid assisted living both in New York and across the country. I think 48 states now offer some kind of Medicaid assisted living um, for, uh, for people who choose that or want to go into assisted living. What is that providing? That's a question for us. What, what about the services? What about the safety there? Um, it can't just be an avenue from our perspective that people are going into another environment without the safety following. And I think another way of putting that is from our perspective, no matter where you are getting care, that care should be of a high quality. It should recognize you as an individual and the care should be meeting your needs as an individual. And then lastly here, we have the idea of the ALF assisted living facility flexibility versus residents' rights versus residents' desires. 
So one example that, uh, and there's plenty that I could have come up with, but one, I think this is a tough one for a lot of people, um, is that the ALF does not want to or maybe cannot have residents who are wheelchair-bound. Now, some of the things that we've heard over the years is that, you know, it's a assisted living, it has a, it's a lovely old Victorian, but there's no way they could put in elevators, people that are very happy, do we really want to see it closed down? And, of course, you know, the first thought is, no, we don't want to see it closed down. Um, and then the other issue, as I said, in terms of resident desires, is that we hear about residents who's like, oh, I don't want to be around people who are in a wheelchair. I don't want to be around people who have dementia, et cetera. And then there is the basic federal right, which goes beyond assisted living, beyond nursing home care. It's the, the Americans with Disabilities Act right and requirement under federal law that people have the right to live in the less restrictive setting possible and that reasonable accommodations have to be made for all individuals. I and mean, you can't discriminate against people in any type of service, whether it be a restaurant or a movie, you know, any type of public accommodation, including assisted living, because they have a disability. I mean, in fact, when you think about it, people are going to assisted living because they have a disability. They have a need for some kind of services. So we have to be very careful and very conscious about how we are dealing with that. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about the Government Accountability Office report. This was the title of it, Medicaid Assisted Living Services, Improved Federal Oversight of Beneficiary Health and Welfare is Needed. That's not my title. That is the USGAO's title, the conclusion that they came to. So a little bit about the USGAO. It's a nonpartisan agency. It's neither Republican nor Democrat. It's not liberal. It's not conservative. It works for Congress on a bipartisan basis or a nonpartisan basis, excuse me. It's often called, as I'm just quoting here from the GAO's website, the Congressional Watchdog. GAO examines how taxpayer dollars are spent and provides Congress and federal agencies with objective, reliable information to help the government save money and work more efficiently. Um, so this report, the Medicaid Assisted Living Services Improved Federal Oversight of Beneficiary Health, and welfare is needed, it provided the results of a nationwide survey of state agencies. Um, usually a state agency like in New York is our Department of Health, could be a Department of Public Health, depending upon what the state calls it. It's the same agency that inspects generally both nursing homes and assisted living. So they did a, they did a survey of the 48 states that have some kind of Medicaid assisted living and, and plus DC, excuse me, and it covered the year of 2014, and it looked specifically at assisted living services provided to Medicaid beneficiaries. So it's really, as we'll talk a little bit more, a small percentage of the Medicaid beneficiaries. Just very briefly, you can see, as I said, DC was included in the survey. Kentucky, Louisiana, and West Virginia were the three states that were not included because they do not have Medicaid assisted living services. So what the GAO found very briefly, this is just some of the highlights, they found that Americans spend more than $10 billion per year in both federal and state Medicaid funding. This is for Medicaid-assisted living for about 330,000 people. Again, this is just the Medicaid publicly funded assisted living. It's not including the private pay, which is most assisted living. Nationally, the average spending per beneficiary uh, on assisted living services was about $30,000 per 
per year in 2014. Uh, though the state Medicaid agencies, again, those departments of health, et cetera, retain, this is a quote, ultimate administrative authority and responsibility over the quality, safety, and integrity of Medicaid-assisted living services to those residents, GAO found that, one, fewer than half the state surveyed, only 22 out of the 48, excuse me, were able to provide any information whatsoever on resident abuse, resident neglect, exploitation, and death of residents, what they called critical incidents. Uh, of those 22 states, there were 23,000 critical incidents reported in 2014. So just think about the number. 22 is obviously a fraction of the states in this country, and the Medicaid is a fraction of the assisted living residents. A fraction of them are on Medicaid, and they found a report of 23,000 critical incidents in 2014 alone. As I said, I think it's a landmark report because we don't have a lot of information about what's going on in assisted living. We, I often only hear from ombudsmen um, and from occasionally from family members and from the organizations that work with them, but that's only here, here, here or there. This is really the first time of which I'm aware that someone was coming in and actually talking to people and here again, we only have a fraction, we're looking at a fraction of the population of assisted living and a fraction of the states with that population and still tens of thousands of critical incidents in 2014. Jay also found that the state agencies were delegating important responsibilities to other agencies. They found that, this is the second bullet here, the second orange bullet, Despite fundamental responsibility to oversee quality and safety, GAO identified significant failures among state agencies to even review critical incident reports, exclusion lists, reports of abuse, the long-term care ombudsman findings about assisted living, um, etc. They found that the 48 state Medicaid agencies that they interviewed varied in their ability to report the number of critical incidents in their states. So as I recall, there were some states that only had a few and some states that have thousands. Well, clearly the states that only had a few, there were, uh, you know, likely to be issues in what they were identifying uh, and who they were talking to, et cetera. So we see that, you know, we're talking about a fraction of the states, we're talking about a fraction of the residents, and we see even with that uh, that there were many states that were not, fully, you know, not having the same definition of what a critical incident is. They were not reviewing them um, the same way or to the, to the same extent. It doesn't have to be the same way necessarily, but to the same extent, and that they couldn't even all report to the same extent what was going on in, the, in their facilities or even define, again, what a critical incident was. So, we're seeing, um, so to speak, the tip of the iceberg. And then lastly here, number three, and this is important to us as well, is that states vary significantly in the extent to which they made information on critical incidents readily available to the public. Why is that important to us? As consumer advocates, we're always concerned. We always want to make sure that people are safe, that their safety is assured, that the quality of care that they receive is assured, 
that their dignity is assured. As I mentioned before, no matter where you get your, your care, you deserve to have those things, no matter who you are, no matter who pays for your care, etc. Um, so that is fundamentally important. But in the absence of strong oversight, in the absence of strong quality assurance, it's critically important that the public have information about what is going on in the facilities, in the communities, uh, in their community, so they can make a choice, so they can see what's going on. Uh, you know, sometimes we see some excellent news reporting, uh, recently in the Buffalo News, but we've seen it in the in, in newspapers from the Boston Globe to the uh, Florida newspapers, the Naples newspapers recently, uh, California newspapers, that this is, it's so important to have that information out there because if not, people have no way of learning what is going on, no way of, of knowing what is going on in their facilities. So a few um, uh, points I wanted to make about the implications uh, of the GAO report for residents and families. Again, I just can't emphasize it enough, because they only looked at Medicaid-assisted living, which is a small minority of all Medicaid, excuse me, of all assisted living residents, and only received information from 22 states, the actual number of critical incidents in assisted living is likely many times greater than 23,000 per year. And fundamentally, from our perspective, state oversight, has failed assisted living residents and the taxpayers who help pay for their care. So as I mentioned before, the, there's no federal safety standards related to assisted living. There are no clinical standards related to assisted living. It really all comes down to what the states have. And what we've seen is that this is a very clear indication from our perspective that state oversight has failed. So I'm going to talk a little bit about our report, and then I'm going to turn it over to Sean. So what we did is, you know, as I said at the very start, we know that there are good assisted living facilities. We know that there are bad assisted living facilities. We wanted to identify what are the good ones doing. You know, what is going on out there that we could identify as a promising policy or a promising practice, excuse me, for ensuring that, that the promise of assisted living is is uh, implemented for residents and that the safety is there, the quality is there. Um, we know that though, that though the state regulations tend to be very weak, there are some good standards out there. What are they? Um, what can we identify that we think is worth noting? And then following that GAO report, what are states doing to protect, protect residents? Now, we tried to find out from the GAO um, what states were providing what, what the responses were from the states. Um, the GAO refused to provide that information to us. So we don't know, for instance, which states had higher numbers of critical incidents that they were finding or identifying, which states had lower. We don't know which states were actually doing a very good job identifying critical incidents uh, versus which weren't. We don't even know what they were, how they were defining critical incidents specifically from state to state to state. So um, this was another way for us, because GAO would not provide that information, to find out, um, you know, to try to get some insights, I should say, into what states are doing to protect residents. Uh, some of the goals in, in, uh, in wanting to identify good policies and practices is that we wanted to inform 
state and federal policymakers. Fundamentally, um, it is important for us, we believe, because it's important for residents now and in the future to have strong standards. Um, and so we were looking to inform state policymakers as well as federal policymakers. And the uh, federal assisted living um, standard, as I think GAO's report really shows, is much needed. So how can we come up with ideas that would be useful standards from a policy perspective on both the state and federal level? We also wanted to inform the industry. As I mentioned from the start, there are some terrific assisted living facilities out there. There are some that are doing, that are staffed appropriately, that are training appropriately, that are really centered on their, their residents and are fulfilling, I think, in, in very uh, valuable ways that promise, again, of assisted living in terms of both safety and quality and independence. And there are others that aren't. How can we inform the industry? Uh, so here are some things that you can do. If you're taking in residents, for instance, with a dementia and you're seeing a growing uh, population of people with dementia, what might be some good things for you to do to make sure that they're safe, to make sure that you are not, um, you know, that, that, you, that you are providing a safe environment and not providing an environment that could be hazardous to them. And a lot of this is really based upon, uh, I would say, common sense, practice, and standards of care. Uh, we talk a lot in our programs about standards of care for dementia, for instance, and I will tell people when I speak to people who are in independent living or getting dementia care at home or in an assisted living or an adult's home that good dementia care is good dementia care, period, whether it's in a nursing home or in assisted living or in home care, etc. So what are some of the basic standards of care that could be useful for the industry based upon the residents that they are taking in. And then fundamentally, as we've been doing with these programs and, and other materials that we're putting out, is that we want to inform consumers. As I mentioned before, in the absence of strong quality assurance and in the absence of, of strong standards, as we quite often see with assisted living, it comes down to the consumer to be aware of what he or she needs of where he or she is going and what kind of services, what they can count on will be provided to them and to ask questions when they are looking at facilities. So these are a few of the things that we focused on. Again, we couldn't do everything. So we identified some issues that we thought were particularly important when it comes to assisted living quality and safety. We looked at staffing requirements uh, in regard to registered nurses, whether or not a state was requiring uh, registered nurses or some practices regarding having a registered nurse. I remember when we were first talking about an assisted living law in, in, in New York State in uh, 2002, 2003, that there were studies of it that I had found that, that indicated that where a, an assisted living has a registered nurse on staff, the residents had better outcomes. So that was something that we have long recommended. Uh, but we looked to see, you know, what kind of requirements were out, were out there? What kind of requirements are there for administrators? When you administer a, an assisted living, there are, for instance, pretty significant requirements to be a nursing home administrator because you literally have a lot of lives that depend upon you. And the same is increasingly true for assisted living. So what kind of requirements are out there that we can say, 
this might be a good thing to have. This might be a good thing to do if you are, you know, in the industry. Staffing requirements regarding staff ratios. What are facilities doing? What are states requiring? For instance, if you have, if you're providing dementia care, do they, do they have someone there who is able to assess a resident 24 hours a day, um, seven hours a day, five days a week, no days a week? What kind of, what kind of care, what kind of oversight is being provided? Next, we also looked at that in terms of recreational activities directors, because we see for, again, for dementia care, because so many residents in assisted living have dementia. I believe it's about 77% of residents in assisted living, based upon a study I saw last year, that have some level of, of, of dementia, whether it be Alzheimer's or other dementia. So recreational activities directors, are people, are there people there who are trained to help a range of residents with the needs, their desires for social activities, et cetera. Staff training requirements generally. What is being required? Now, in a nursing home, you have to be at least a certified nurse aide to provide any type of care. That is not true in the system of it. So some states have no requirements or really just a few hours of training requirements. No certification, no licensure. Um, they may not require an RN or an LPN at all. So who is providing care? And how are they providing care? And how are they being trained on the typical things that an aging individual, a person with dementia, uh, might need? Help with medication, understanding, uh, et cetera. Dementia care, of course, I've come to over and over again, but dementia care is so important in this setting. Um, what kind of policies were in place for oversight and quality assurance across the states? What were they doing? Were they doing annual inspections or semi-annual inspections? There's a range of things that states are doing. Uh, we wanted to identify some things that we thought were good and also alert the public as to what is going on in their state. Resident and family councils, is there a requirement like there is for nursing homes under federal law that states have a requirement that, um, that, that residents and families are allowed to have to establish independent councils in the facility? We looked at policies around handling abuse and neglect, and of course, working to prevent and address abuse and neglect. Policies around transfer and discharge, because this is uh, a major issue for people in residential care, both in nursing homes and in assisted living, and it goes, especially in assisted living, both ways, is that in terms of discharge, that um, do you have a right to stay in the facility? What kind of protections do you have from being discharged because the facility says, oh, you're, you're, you complain too much, or your, your loved one is a pain in the neck, or we promised you that you could age in place, but now we don't, we don't want to provide or are not able to provide the kind of care that you need. What kind of rights do individuals have in different states? Uh, and then also transfer and discharge, as I said, goes the other way, uh, is that we are seeing more and more that assisted living are retaining individuals for whom they're not equipped to provide uh, the care and the services that those individuals need. Uh, so again, I don't want to get too complicated with this, but if you don't have the CNA staff and you don't have the RN or LPN staff there, you just have people who maybe have a few hours of training, what happens to those individuals who are aging in place? What happens to those individuals who need help you know, with um, medication administration or 
uh, have significant dementia, is the facility uh, self-assessing, in essence, and saying, you know what, we cannot safely care for you, or is it the facility saying, wow, we have 80% of our beds taken, 20% of our beds are not filled, we are going to lose money if we let this person go. So are they retaining uh, people unnecessarily or un unsafely, I should say? What kind of consumer information is out there? What kind of disclosures are out there? What kind of recommendations would we want to make about what does a consumer need to hear from either the state or from the facility itself or both in terms of what their rights are, what they can expect in terms of services, in terms of costs, et cetera. Those things are all really important to people. And then lastly, but also very important from our perspective, is what kind of information is out there in terms of survey reports, the complaints received about a facility, the, the investigations and the outcomes of those complaints that are received about a facility. In nursing homes, we realize as a nation that that information is really important, the transparency about the surveys, the inspections of the facilities, the results of those inspections, about complaints, et cetera, is very important. Um, but the, what we found, and we'll talk a little bit more, is that the states varied significantly, and to the extent we were able to look, the assisted living companies also varied significantly in terms of what they were able or, or what they were willing to provide to the public about, um, you know, about surveys, about complaints, et cetera. Just, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, what does a assisted living have to provide? Well, in the nursing home world, every nursing home is supposed to provide a copy of its survey available to visitors, available to residents, et cetera. Is that true for assisted living? Should it be true for assisted living? We would say yes. So very briefly, a few of our findings, and I'm going to move, um, uh, move it on to Sean to talk about some of our new fact sheets based upon our findings. We found that only 10 states have some kind of staffing ratio. We found that 16 states do not have a dementia care staff proficiency requirement in regard to training of staff and or licensure of staff. Uh, 17 states do not have any requirement for an RN on staff. And half of the states require less than annual inspections of their assisted living. And let me tell you, a lot can happen within a year. So um, that could be critical as well. What kind of, you know, what kind of quality assurance is going on and what are we knowing about what is going on in an assisted living? A lot of that comes from the inspections. Uh, this is, just wanted to show you how the, what the report looks like. So this is just a couple of pages from the dementia care. So you can see for every single issue, and this is how we do, those of you who have seen our report on nursing home standards, we did this in the same kind of format. We have a brief introduction you can see on the left-hand side. We identify some key best practices, um, and that's going forward to the second page. And then below that, what we did with this report is we highlighted some state policies that we thought were useful. And here you can see Georgia. This continues on for a few pages. This is, again, an excerpt from the report that is available on our website. It's free. It's a PDF. It's searchable. So you can go to any issue that you want to from the table of contents and immediately find this, you know, some basic information, some key best practices that we identified, as well as a selection of state policies that we thought were useful.
And I think this is lastly, before I move on to Sean, is this is our state policies chart. And I give the URL, the nursinghome411.org, excuse me, uh, assisted-living-state-requirements-chart forward slash. That's the link. But you can see it here, and this will be on our website as well, both the presentation and the chart itself. But you can you can take this chart, and this shows what we found in terms of for each state, and it's just a snapshot, you could, if you're able to see, if I can make this bigger, I can't, unfortunately. For each state, we have the website of the state's Department of Health or Department of Public Health. We have the frequency of inspections. We have whether or not they are able to do financial penalties, whether or not they have a staffing hours ratio, the percent who are, who are not receiving antipsychotic drugs, um, information on that, aid training or certification requirement, dementia care staff proficiency requirement, resident family council requirement, et cetera. So you can see all this. You can download it, and you can go to your state's website and see exactly what they are providing as well. So I'm going to turn this over to Sean now, and I think what I should be able to do is, um, Sean, can you press star six? That should be able to open up for you. Sean? Hello, Richard? Hi, Sean, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, great. So I'm going to go to the next page. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Great, thanks. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Wang. As Richard introduced me earlier, I'm a graduate of Mammoth School of Public Health and I'm a current policy fellow for Long-Term Care Community Coalition. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with all of you today. So Richard has given me the opportunity to share with all of you what we've been doing recently in regards to assisted living. Please uh, mute it again. And then if you press star six, I think you can get on. Is that right, Sarah? 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 Hello? Hi there. Right. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to mute everyone and then start, try pressing star six and see if that works. Sean? Oh. Hello? Hi. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, okay. So, as I was saying, so we had recently released our report on living, as Richard mentioned earlier, which describes the good practices we noted from state regulations for assisted living. In our report, we touched on a number of topics, as described before, such as staffing ratios, abuse, neglect, and survey reporting, which we felt were important subjects that states should have different regulation standards for. And from that report, we compiled a number of fact sheets based on the information found in our report. And the fact sheets are meant to provide an overview of some of the important topics we discussed in the report. And today in particular, I'll be focusing on three of these topics, abuse and neglect, dementia care, and staff training, to give everyone an example of what's contained in our fact sheets, as well as provide greater details on certain sections that we believe are important for residents and families, as well as advocates to know. 
So we divided the fact sheets into three sections. One is the introduction, which gives a summary of what the topic is about. The second is a list of recommendations, which is essentially the best policies and practice section that is under each topic in our assisted living report. And this section provides recommendations for policymakers, uh, state regulatory agencies, and advocates to improve the existing state regulations of the given topic. And in the next section after that, we provide a map that shows state requirements for the given topic. And this information is used, or the information that is used for these maps, we found from our research on which states are upholding certain regulations and which are not. And that data can be found in the Excel sheet that is complementary to the report that we published. And finally, we have a list of resources that offer more material on the subject, some of which are from our website and others from various sources. So that's a basic framework for each of these fact sheets, and I'll review each of these in depth now. Uh, looking first at our fact sheet, which is on abuse and neglect, much of the background information is based on the GAO report from 2018, and this describes how many states do not have methods to track critical incidences. Uh, unfortunately, the GAO report, as we, as Richard mentioned before, does not indicate which states are tracking critical incidences, which makes it difficult for families and residents to understand just the situation of uh, abuse and neglect in their, their community. Uh, we included a couple of recommendations. I can describe a couple now. So assisted living facilities should require that training be, um, oh, one moment, should undertake training requirements under employment that includes coverage of identifying, preventing, and reporting abuse, neglect, and other critical incidences. Any assisted living facility employee who has contact with residents, including care staff, recreational and social work, food service, and housekeeping staff should undergo annual training on identifying, preventing, and reporting abuse, neglect, and other critical incidences. And states should have a consistent definition of what comprises a critical incidence and be expected to monitor and review such incidences on an ongoing basis. On the following page, we have a map of the state requirements. And for this particular fact sheet, we have two maps, actually, one for the public disclosure of survey reports and another that illustrates the public information on the remedies imposed. So one shows whether states are actually making public their survey reports uh, from each assisted living facility, another whether or not they require certain actions from the facility in response to those incidences. Specifically, 28 states and the District of Columbia do not publish remedies in response to critical incidences online, and 22 states uh, do publish the remedies in response to these incidences. And the, the orange represents those that do have the requirement, while purple represents those that do not. The section after that is the further reading section, and the two main sources that we have for this fact sheet are the assisted living reports, as well as the corresponding Excel document, which are both online on our website. Uh, so, Richard, next slide. Okay, so the second fact sheet that we have is on staff training requirements. Um, so a bit of background, staffing is one of the most important indicators of staff facilities' quality of care. Poor staffing standards, such as in training, may lead residents not getting the proper care that they need, as well as raising the risk of residents receiving poor health outcomes, harm, and even death due to 
uh, abuse and neglect. And due to federal, lack of federal regulations, there exists a wide variety of different staff training requirements for each state. And many states require that facilities have initial training for new employees, while others may also include continuous education, meaning they have training sessions every year or every other year. So that's just a bit of background for the staff training. Um, one moment. So some recommendations that we've included. One is that assisted living facilities should require that training be completed within the first day for 30 days of hire. Assisted living facilities should ensure that training equips staff with skills in and knowledge of a range of subject areas critical to resident safety and well-being, including emergency preparedness, Alzheimer's, and other dementia, residents' rights, detecting abuse and neglect, communication skills, and assisting with medication. And assisted living facilities should categorize training requirements depending on staff types, such as administrators, staffing, staff workers with residents who have dementia, and staff-assisted residents with activities of daily living. So those are a couple of the recommendations that we have. And the full list of recommendations you can find on our full assisted living report for all these fact sheets. Next section is the state requirement chart for the staff training requirements. It says 47 states and the District of Columbia require direct care workers to undergo and complete training. Three states do not have training requirements. Uh, and training requirements may differ depending on whether or not it's an initial requirement for meaning within the first couple weeks of hire or if it's continuous education, so if it's every other year or every year. Um, and for further re reading, we have, again, the assisted living report, the corresponding Excel document, and we also have included the compendium of residential care and assisted living regulation and policy 2015 edition, which is one of the main sources that we use to uh, gather our data on state regulations for our report. So those are our three main sources that we have um, included. Richard, next. And finally, we have the fact sheet on dementia care. So a little bit of background. About 70% of residents in assisted living facility have some form of dementia or Alzheimer's. And a piece by Brian Kasky on dementia care and assisted living showed that although the majority of residents had dementia, staff identified only 40% of the residents having dementia. So there's a lack of awareness and understanding of the prevalence and severity of dementia in these facilities. And since there's no federal regulation for assisted living, this leaves many residents vulnerable to receive improper care, you know, poor care, and even abuse and neglect from staff members. For recommendations, we actually have an extended list as we feel that dementia care in assisted living is one of the most important topics that we should cover. As a result, this fact sheet is actually three pages instead of two, as with the other fact sheets. And I'll read a couple of them. So one is that assisted living facilities should provide dementia, safe and friendly physical environments. Uh, another is for staffing, assisted living facilities provides that provide care to residents with dementia should provide at least three hours of direct care staff time per resident per day. Uh, one for staff training is that administrators and direct care workers should undergo respectively a minimum of 12 and four hours of initial training 
within 30 days of employment in dementia care. So those are a couple of the requirements that we have listed. Uh, Richard, next. And here we have the map for dementia care. And what we have here, just one moment. So what we have here is that 38 states have regulations on providing care for residents with dementia. 12 states and the District of Columbia do not have regulations listed. And the type of training, content, and hours required may differ between states. And states may specifically require that the direct care workers would provide service to residents with dementia have a license. Um, so these are the facts that we have on our sheets. So if you'd like to see more of our fact sheets, you can check out our website at nursinghome411.org, and all of our resources will be up there on our website. So I'll hand it back over to Richard now. John, thanks very much. Uh, that, that was great. Um, so hi, this is Richard again. So that, those are some of the fact sheets we've had. We, we've done them on, I think, seven topics that we thought would be useful just for people to have a pullout of um, – uh, you know, rather than having the full report that might be useful to them. Uh, I think that I have next – oh, yes, I wanted to mention that, you know, please, you know, especially if you're working with residents or family members, we have started a new Tell My Story campaign uh, about nursing home or assisted living care. We are really interested in any story that a resident or a family member or a uh, direct care worker or an ombudsman wants to tell. Everything is completely anonymous, um, but it's really helpful to hear what is going on. It helps to inform our advocacy and to hear about, you know, again, what is going on on the ground. We want to hear good stories as well as um, stories about problems and abuse and neglect because we know, as I've been saying all along, that there are, you know, good nursing homes and good assisted living out there, uh, and we want to highlight some of the things that are going on there as well. Just a few things you could show that, excuse me, you can, you can download the PDF of the Tell My Story, uh, camp, uh, Tell My Story form, excuse me, and send it back to us. The address is on the last page, or you can fill it out on our website, on computer screenshot on the left-hand side, iPhone screenshot, iPad, etc. So it's pretty easy to use. I would also ask, we don't have a national action alert out yet on this issue but we do have one for New York State on assisted living to please speak out. And I, I imagine that we will be doing a national action alert on this. Uh, we have worked on assisted living, uh, a federal assisted living standard in the past, and I certainly hope that we will do so and expect that we will do so again. It was one of the impetuses for doing this study and uh, looking at the um, different practices from around the country. Uh, so, this is a cover of the report. It's available again on nursinghome411.org as well as that state chart that I um, showed you all earlier and the fact sheets, some of which Sean has introduced to you today. If you would like to sign up for any of our alerts on these issues, please email info at LT, as in Tom, CCC.org. Our next program is on February 19th at 1 p.m., we're going to be talking about advocacy issues to improve care for residents with dementia. Uh, the standards we'll be talking about are nursing home standards, but as I mentioned before, 
uh, for those of you who are maybe are joining us for assisted living, is that good care and good dementia care is good dementia care everywhere, no matter whether someone's getting care in their own home, in the, in the community, in an assisted living, or in a nursing home. So these things are, um, you know, it's, it's important uh, to us that people have access to good care and to appropriate services no matter where they are. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Again, email info at ltccc.org, or you can call us, 212-385-0355, to sign up for invites to future programs, for news and alerts. Uh, you can join us at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ltccc, uh, twitter.com ltcconsumer. And then lastly, below you support folks in New York State, for ombudsman, uh, if you would like us to tell your supervisor that you attended this training program, please take this quick survey, surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. And then for family members in New York State, I would highly recommend connecting with the Alliance of New York Family Councils. Uh, we're actually having a call this evening, call and an in-person meeting for those who can attend in New York. But it's a great organization. It's such a nice opportunity for family members and uh, family council members to come together and to talk and to troubleshoot issues. Uh, you know, a major goal of ours this, you know, in, in over the next couple of years is to do whatever we can to help family councils and help family members establish family councils. It makes a big difference in the lives of residents in nursing homes and in assisted living. So please get in touch with us. If you have questions or need help, need resources, we'll do what we can to help you or to point you in the right direction. And I'm going to open it up for questions and comments. So I'm going to look online first to see um, uh, someone what questions people asked. So, um, oh, hi, Larry Palka. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, so let me just see. Larry asked, what impact is the increasing involvement of corporate health firms in Medicaid LTC programs having on the use of ALPS and Medicaid? Um, any, any impact, I think you're asking, on quality assurance efforts? Uh, well, that's really interesting. So I think that, you know, we are seeing a growth, at least up until, uh, you know, the current presidential administration. I think that the current administration is probably trying to, uh, you know, cut down on some of the Medicaid programs, such as the Medicaid Assisted Living. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But overall, we've seen, you know, that there is a growth in Medicaid long-term care programs outside of nursing homes into assisted living, into home care. And, um, you know, so the corporatization of that, I think, has, um, you know, I, I guess personally, I'm not sure what I've seen. I've seen more of that in the nursing home area in terms of concerns about corporatization um, as opposed to assisted living. And that may be because we just don't have as much information about assisted living care as we do about nursing home care uh, in terms of the data availability, et cetera. Now, the impact on quality assurance efforts is very interesting. Uh, as a number of you have noted, we are certainly um, supportive of a federal standard for assisted living, and we have been for quite some time. I think that we, um, we might see more of that in the future, and we have seen some, some Actually, the only federal regulations now relate to the home and community characteristics of assisted living. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't have much of a chance to get into here. I know we're past two o'clock, 
but essentially what the federal government has done, they don't have quality standards. They don't have care standards or staffing standards of any kind. However, they do have requirements that are pretty new about what are the characteristics of an assisted living that is providing uh, Medicaid assisted living. So that relates to the ability to uh, lock a door to your bedroom, the parameters around which you can be required to share a room and your choices about sharing a room with someone else, the availability of food, etc. So that could be something that we talk about, maybe some of the more quality of life issues. Um, that's the extent to which we're seeing quality assurance. Um, now, I see we have another um, a, a question from Jane, FYI, regarding Richard's comments. New York State Medicaid AL program was actually expanded over the last few years, um, and New York DOH is now offering demonstration projects to subsidize uh, assisted living for those with dementia. Uh, yes, that's true, and I, I would not at this point weigh in on that. I mean, there are, um, uh, I think, concerns, again, getting back to what I said from the very start, about putting more money and more resources and more people into assisted living without really having the um, quality of care uh, or the quality assurance and the safety assurance that exists for those people, people with, with dementia, et cetera, um, in other settings. And that is kind of worrisome to me. Uh, Maureen Estabrooks asked, will we ever see Medicaid covering ALFs in full? Um, that's an interesting question as well. So the way it works essentially for Medicaid programs, Medicaid state assisted living programs, is that the Medicaid pays for the um, care portion. It does not pay for the, um, the, the residential portion. However, and I, I, I'm not a, uh, an expert on this to be, to be quite honest. However, I do know that the in short, what, what generally happens is that the assisted living is getting about half of the nursing home Medicaid rate. Now, nursing homes, in short, will often complain that the Medicaid rate is low. However, uh, when it comes to assisted living, that same rate, even half of that rate, is pretty high. Why? Because it doesn't, there, there aren't the staffing requirements. There aren't the clinical requirements that go with nursing homes. So when it comes to assisted living, half of the nursing home Medicaid rate is a, generally speaking, a, a, a high amount of money. It's pretty close, when I looked at it a couple of years ago, to the private pay rate. So uh, I can't say specifically to how they pay for the residential portion of those services, but the rate itself in the assisted living world is pretty high in comparison to, or pretty comparable um, to a lot of the private pay rates. So Sarah's telling me there are a couple of questions before. Oh, Bonnie Kleinen, thank you, asked, does memory care facility fall under assisted living or nursing home guidelines? Well, that is a really, um, that, that, that's a serious issue. Well, the memory care and assisted living falls under assisted living, which means that it falls under, as Sean was saying, generally speaking, not a lot of requirements. And that is a major concern for us as I've, you know, tried to iterate. I know, you know, we put a lot of information in our program. So these materials are there for you um, to use. And we try to answer questions afterwards, um, you know, beyond today as much as possible. But 
generally speaking, the it is a concern for us that people with significant dementia can be in assisted living. People with significant dementia can be in a nursing home, at least in a nursing home, even though we know there are widespread problems. At least in a nursing home, they have to have an RN. They have to have um, they have some responsibilities and some you know, clear responsibilities, I should say, regarding medication handling and medication management and proficiencies, etc. Those things quite often are are non-existent or barely exist in the assisted living world, and that's why you know, as getting back to uh, the other question we just had, why I'm concerned about expanding assisted living for dementia with these waivers because. If you're not following with quality and oversight, then you are just really allowing that crapshoot that I mentioned at the very beginning of the program. I just want to see very quickly back. Um, uh, Larry had asked earlier, and, and Jess Winters had answered, and I agree, it is time for national standards for assisted living facilities because we have so many people, again, that have high levels of needs, and we're seeing more and more that the population in assisted living is very close to, if not the same, as the population who have traditionally gone to a nursing home. So that's fine, or that would be fine, if, again, we had the level of quality assurance and safety and professionalism that those people need. And that is, that is really what it comes down to for us. So we're, it's fine to have flexibility. In fact, we want to have flexibility in every setting in terms of people getting a snack when they want to, people being connected to their church or their synagogue or their mosque or their card game or their beauty parlor or whatever, you know, whatever they want in the outside community, no matter where they live. And that should especially be happening in assisted living, since assisted living is based upon that promise of that connection, of that autonomy and independence. Um, but we have to make sure that residents are not being put at risk um, you know, when, when in those communities and in those settings. So I think unless there's any other questions, you can press star six. I'd be yes. happy to answer questions. Yes. Um, hi, Richard. Hi, Charles. Hi. Just a question. Uh, considering that uh, dementia residents can exist in either type of facility and that it goes, that the, the disorder exists on a continuum, is there a significant problem with assisted living facilities retaining residents past the point where they're really qualified to care for them so they don't want to lose a population? Yeah, so Charles it raises a, um, a very important issue. I and mean, this is something I, I mentioned it briefly at the very beginning that, that we are seeing that there is transfer and discharge issues. You know, in nursing homes, we typically see people being discharged when um, their private pay runs out or when their Medicare runs out um, and a facility will say, oh, you know, we don't provide long-term care, um, you know, you need to go. Um, that's a whole other story. But the, and, and, excuse me, in assisted living as well, we see people being pushed out when they, they may have been promised that, yes, you can, you can stay here as your needs increase, and then the facility will say, oh, um, you, the assisted living facility will say, oh, you know, we actually can't provide care for you safely anymore. They'll call up the child, you know, a daughter or a son, and say, you know, your mother has, has to go because um, she has too much dementia. And then, as Charles is saying, we also have the flip side. And this is a very, very serious 
an increasing issue where the assisted living is keeping people that it can no longer um, safely care for because the person has has maybe significant dementia, the person may have significant clinical needs, et cetera, and the facility, the assisted living facility, is just not equipped or not staffed to meet those needs, and it doesn't want to typically lose the money or lose the resident, so um, the facility will keep that resident, and it's not safe. And I've seen that personally, uh, and we're seeing that more and more and hearing about that more and more from from family members, from ombudsmen, et cetera, who are telling us, you know, some of these facilities are retaining residents that they can no longer safely care for. It's a major, major issue. So thanks for raising that, Charles. Uh, are there any other questions? Yes, I, yes. I have a question. Do you hear me? Oh, yes. Uh, Mary Pace, I'm from Montgomery County, Maryland Ombudsman Program. Hi. Uh, I just to know from my I I'm in uh I have the assisted living facility. I've been doing this for about 10 years and I understand the aging in place. And it seems to me, you know, in my facility, most of the people have dementia, but there are so many different levels of dementia. It's just like uh uh saying that somebody has uh ADD or whatnot. So my question to you is when when you look at at this, um, uh, you, you know, when when you report dementia, what is your definition? Do you have certain levels? Because you know, dementia is uh, a, a natural aging process, and there are just so many different levels. And in Maryland, I think we have for ALs that. I think there are three there are three levels and if you if if you I mean there are two levels and if if you can't uh if the facility cannot meet meet uh a potential resident's needs they won't accept them and if they age in place and require more more uh uh care then many times they'll just in order to retain that resident, they'll have to bring in uh, someone else. You know, the family will have to bring in uh, someone else, a caretaker, for uh, uh, a prescribed period of time to allow that resident to stay in the AL. And that's how they handle it and seems to be working pretty well in the facility where I am. Well, I mean, thank you. You, you raised a lot of, of issues, which I, I hope that we've touched upon throughout the program. And also, in, in particular, I think in regard to um, what Sean was saying in the in, in the fact sheet that we have, and that's why we made the dementia care fact sheet. We broke our two-page fact sheet rule, and it's three pages, because we wanted to include a range of recommendations. Uh, I mean, there are, there are different kinds of dementia, of course. Dementia can take different forms um, and have, you know, and, and people can vary. Even someone who has significant dementia um, can vary from day to day or different times of the day. It is incumbent upon the, the, the provider of care, no matter what that provider of care is, to make sure that he or she can meet that person's needs safely and based upon his or her needs as an individual. Now, by the way, 
Uh, I know we're running late, so thank you for those who are able to stay. Um, that is already what the nursing home law requires, is that the nursing home law requires that a nursing home, we've talked about this in past programs, is uh, assessing the resident, they're assessing the resident when, when their care needs change, reassessing them, excuse me, and they are developing a care plan tailored to their needs. And as I've said a couple of times in this program, that should be the type of care, that's certainly the type of care that everyone deserves, and that's what should be happening in every type of facility, uh, or, or in home for that matter, no matter where they're getting their care. But what the issues that you raise are really important when it comes to assisted living. One is that the, um, you know, those requirements in terms of care planning, in terms of resident assessment, are generally speaking not there at all. Um, that the requirements in terms of staffing are much, much lower. So the resident could be forced or require, you know, required to bring in someone private pay to help them independently. Um, what does that mean for the resident? What does that mean for the resident who has limited income? What does that mean for the resident who is told by an assisted living salesperson, oh, yes, you can come here and we will care for you safely as your dementia increases? Now, you know, if people in your community can, uh, can negotiate that and can pay for that, then that is great. But I'm hearing about personally, to be frank, of uh, people that I know who are um, in communities where they are not receiving the services, where their growing dementia is not adequately identified, no matter addressed by their facility, um, and they are not doing well. So, th so uh, th there is a tremendous range there, and it's very concerning to me that people are uh, not presented even with uh, public information, you know, even, even with the basic consumer information that you would need coming in. Now, there was just, I actually just um, heard from someone we work closely with in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, pardon me, Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, that the um, Massachusetts now has a new form that they are using, uh, this is the state, that provides disclosures in terms of what kind of services um, you can expect, what kind of payments you'll, you'll, you can expect for the different services that you need. This is for when you come into the facility. So it's really important. Some of this just gets down to disclosures, but as I said earlier in the program, disclosures is not enough because it's a high-pressure situation when people enter a facility, and when they speak to someone who is doing marketing and who is helping, you know, trying to get people to come into the facility, that person is not necessarily not necessarily clinical uh, in terms yeah. of his or her background, doesn't have the expertise to say. So, what happens to, to that re resident when they come in and there are and their needs increase? Well. As we've said, right. a variety of things can happen. Sometimes they are forced to leave because the facility can't care for them. Sometimes they are forced to pay more, as you're saying, or to bring hire somebody. Yeah. Sometimes, as Charles is saying, they are kept there and the facility can't care for them safely. Right. I, I think that, that the two so, factors work pretty well for screening them as far as the facility is concerned. Is The, the first one is... Is this person a danger to others? Um, and uh, secondly, if they are a significant 
slight risk, then they are motivated to find uh, another, you know, facility for these individuals. And I, I, I think that works pretty well, you well, know. I mean, I, I can't say, obviously, I'm, I'm not there, um, but, it, it, you know, the things that I've been concerned about are, are just what I'm saying is that people have greater needs, and they're not a danger, you know, they're not going to, I mean, they could possibly be a danger to themselves, but certainly they're living in a situation that is becoming increasingly precarious, and it's not being well recognized by the facilities in which they're in. And so that is very is very concerning to me. And as I said, you know, earlier in the program, there are some facilities that do have an RN. There are some facilities that are providing more comprehensive care as an individual needs it, but it is right. something that I think for a lot of consumers, they are not well informed about uh, when they come into a facility and because you expect that, you know, you're going to get what the marketing person is telling you and you're hopeful and you're not really aware of how dementia can play out. Uh, so it is it is a, a broader concern. You know, again, I, I don't want to speak to and I can't speak to, obviously, what goes on in your facility. One thing that that study that, that Sean and I mentioned that said that 70% of residents have some level of dementia in in assisted living, and yes, of course, that can that can range, vary, is that uh, 37% of them are on antipsychotic drugs, which is outrageously high uh, as a matter, just on its face, and something that is extremely concerning. Who, who determines the, uh, I mean, the the psychotic, the uh, who prescribes it? I mean, are are the uh, administrators of ALs recommending antipsychotics to uh, to control uh, such individuals. Um, well, I can't say. I mean, that that's you know, when we we wouldn't. I don't know where we would get those those kind of data, but we are seeing in the situation, you know, in the environment on a large scale, that there are a very high percentage of people. Um, I would say, um, you know, these this is a dementia population that on on par with what's going on in nursing homes, which we know isn't good, that there is a significant amount of overdrugging. Uh, so it, I assume, just like in nursing homes, it's being used as a form of chemical restraint. Uh, it's also what I've seen personally, um, but that's, you know, I, I haven't done a study on it, just what I've seen personally in my life, of uh, people being chemically restrained in assisted living as well. I, 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 I want to guess, um, yeah, we're, we're, this is a large unknown, you know, because... We've never discussed it. I've been with a, a program for the program for ten years, and we've never discussed it. And I only asked I asked because you have that in one of your charts, and I think that you know it would be um, good or interesting to see you know what can be done about that if if it's an issue. And it's but it's a very complicated issue as well so yes well I, I think that some of the things that underlie it are complicated just as they are in, in nursing homes but we we are aware of the problem we have the data that the problem is extensive and we have the data on uh and we know from clinical practice care standards for decades now uh but certainly widely publicized in the last eight years that um antipsychotic drugs are inappropriate for um, for people with dementia, uh, you know, unless they have a psychotic condition, you know, a and I'm not talking about dementia-related psychosis, 
but but a you know pre-existing condition, of course. Uh, but why don't we? We're actually going to be talking about dementia care next time, so hopefully you'll join us. I just before we, we close, I have a question from Ken. Um, what requirements do apps have to observe the cultural sensitivities of residents, and what ability must facilities have to communicate with residents from English is not their primary language? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, so this this gets to requirements for for assisted living regarding cultural sensitivity and communication, etc. That is a, um, I know, I, 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 as far as I know, the requirements are um, extremely limited to non-existent. Now, Sean had mentioned there's a compendium of assisted living regulations, and you could see what is going on in assisted, in, excuse me, in a particular state. Uh, if there's something along those lines, I think, you know, I'm trying to remember the compendium talked about it. I thought that it might have, but I'm not sure, to, I don't recall to what extent. But the compendium, as, I, as Sean has said, and as I'm saying now, was very useful to us in, in seeing what's going on in the states in a range of different issues, and I would recommend looking at that. So if you looked up Compendium um, of Assisted Living 2015, that should, um, for anyone who's on and is interested, or you can find it on the, um, uh, on the Assisted Living fact sheet as well and in our report we cite it. Uh, so I'm going to say thank you to everybody who joined us today. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll join us again next month. Uh, stay warm, and we'll talk soon. Uh, and thank you all for your interest and for the work you're doing for residents. Bye-bye now.